4. Roots nearly to dot zero 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 dot zero 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 tons. About area code seven three zero 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 bushels. On the other hand, it exports about five hundred thirty point zero 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 tons net of the area code one one nine zero 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 tons of rye produced. It imports nearly three dot zero 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 dot zero 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 tons of low grade barley and about one dot zero 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 dot zero 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 of maize both chiefly for feeding stock. Its net imports of grain and legumes are 6.270.000 tons. Of its fruit consumption, about 30%, has been imported, while Germany has been producing nearly its entire meat supply at home. This has been accomplished only by the very extensive use of foreign feedstuffs. The authors of this work estimate that the imports of meats and animals, together with the product from domestic animals fed with foreign feedstuffs, amount to not less than 33% of the total consumption. They also hold that about 58% of the milk consumed in Germany represents imports and the product of cows fed with foreign feedstuffs. Nearly 40% of the egg consumption was hitherto imported. The consumption of fish has averaged 576.000 tons, of which not less than 62% was imported, and the home fisheries are now confined, besides the internal waters almost wholly to the Baltic Sea which means the loss of the catch of 142.000 tons hitherto taken from the North Sea. Even the Germans' favorite beverage, beer, contains 13% of imported ingredients. The authors assume, as already intimated, that nearly all of these imports will be lost to Germany during the full duration of the war, and they take up, under this big limitation, the problem of showing how Germany can live upon its own resources and go on fighting till it wins. They undertake to show how savings can be made in the use of the supplies on hand, and also how production can be increased or changed so as to keep the country supplied with food products. In the first place, they insist that the prohibition of the export of grain be made absolute, in other words, the small exception made in favor of Switzerland, which has usually obtained most of its grain from Germany, must be cancelled. Savings in the present supplies of grain and feedstuffs must be made by a considerable reduction in the livestock, inasmuch as the grain, potatoes, turnips, and other stuffs fed to animals will support a great many more men if consumed directly by them. From the stock of cattle the poorer milkers must be eliminated and converted into beef. 10% of the milch cows to be thus disposed of, thence wine, in particular, must be slaughtered down to 65% of the present number. They being great consumers of material suitable for human food. In Germany much skin milk and buttermilk is fed to swine. The authors demand that this partial waste of very valuable albumens be stopped. The potato crop of which Germany produces above area code 5000000 tons a year, or much more than any other land must be more extensively drawn upon than hitherto for feeding the people. To this end potato drying establishments must be multiplied. These will turn out a rough product for feeding animals, and a better sort for table use. It may be added here that the Prussian government last autumn decided to give financial aid to agricultural organizations for erecting drying plants, also, that the imperial government has decreed that potatoes up to a maximum of 30%, may be used by the bakers in making bread a measure which will undoubtedly make the grain supply suffice till the 1915 crop is harvested. It is further recommended that more vegetables be preserved, whether directly in cold storage or by canning or pickling. Moreover, 
the industrial use of fat suitable for human food as in making soaps, lubricating oils, and see, must be stopped, and people must eat less meat, less butter, and more vegetables, grain must not be converted into starch, people must burn coke rather than coal, for the coking process yields the valuable byproduct of sulfate of ammonia, one of the most valuable of fertilizers, and greatly needed by German farmers now owing to the stoppage of imports of nitrate of soda from Chile. In considering how the German people may keep up their production of food, the authors find that various factors will work against such a result. In the first place, there is a shortage of labor. Nearly all the able-bodied young and middle-aged men in the farming districts being in the war, there is also a scarcity of horses, some 500.000 head having already been requisitioned for army use, and the imports of about 140.000 head chiefly from Russia had almost wholly ceased. The people must therefore resort more extensively to the use of motor plows, and the state governments must give financial assistance to ensure this wherever necessary, and such plows on hand must be kept more steadily in use through company ownership or rental. It may be remarked here, again, that the Prussian government is also assisting agricultural organizations to buy motor plows. The supply of fertilizers has also been cut down by the war. Nitrate has just been mentioned. The authors recommend that the government solve this problem by having many of the existing electrical plants turn partly to recovering nitrogen from the atmosphere. This, they say, could be done without reducing the present production of electricity for ordinary purposes since only 19% of the effective capacity of the 2.000.000 horsepower producible by the electrical plants of Germany is actually used. The supply of phosphoric fertilizers is also endangered through the stoppage of imports of phosphate rock nearly 1.000.000 tons a year as well as the material from which to make sulfuric acid, also, through the reduction in the production of the iron furnaces of the country from the slag of which over 2.000.000 tons of so-called Thomas phosphate flour was produced, will involve a big reduction in the make of that valuable fertilizer. Thus, there is a lack of horses, of fertilizers, and of the guiding hand of man. This last, however, can be partly supplied by utilizing for farm work such of the prisoners of war as come from the farm as Germany now holds considerably more than 600.000 prisoners. It can draw many farm laborers from among them. Prisoners are already used in large numbers in recovering moorland for agricultural purposes. This latter remark suggests one of the recommendations of the authors for increasing agricultural production the increased recovery of moorlands. They show that Germany has at least 52.000 square miles more than area code 33000000 acres of moors convertible into good arable land, which with proper fertilizing, can be made at once richly productive, they yield particularly large crops of grain and potatoes. Moreover, the state governments must undertake the division of large landed estates among small proprietors wherever possible and this is more possible just now than ever, owing to the fact that many large owners have been killed in battle. The reason for such a division is that the small holder gets more out of the acre than the large proprietor, as Germany makes a large surplus of sugar. The authors advise that the area planted in beets be reduced and the land thus liberated be planted in grain, potatoes, and turnips. As a matter of fact, it is reported that the government is now considering the question of reducing the beetroot acreage by one-fourth. The authors also recommend that sugar be used to some extent in feeding stock, 
sweeting low-grade hay and roots with it to make them more palatable and nutritious. It is also regarded as profitable to leave 20% of sugar in the beets, so as to secure a more valuable feed product in the remnants. Still another agricultural change is to increase the crops of beans, peas, and lentils vegetables which contain when dried as much nutrition as meat. Germany will need to increase its home production of these crops to replace the 300.000 tons of them hitherto imported. Such are the principal points covered by these experts. Their conclusion is that, if their recommendations be carried out fully, and various economies be practiced they could not be touched on in the limits of this article Germany can manage to feed its people. But they insist, in their earnest, concluding words, that this can only be done by carrying out thoroughly all the methods of producing and saving food products advised by them. It is a serious problem, indeed, but one which, all Germany is convinced, can and will be solved. H.O.C.H. Dear Kaiser by George Davies H.O.C.H. Dear Kaiser. Amen. Amen. We of the pulpit and bar, we of the engine and car, hail to the Caesar who's given us men, our rightful heritage back again, who kicks the dancing shoes from our feet, snatches our mouths from the hog-forced meat, drags us away from our warm-padded stalls, from our ivory keys, our song books and balls, orders man's hands from the children's go-carts, closes our fool schools of ethics and arts, puts our ten fingers on triggers and swords, marshals us into war's legions by hordes, hope dear Kaiser, amen, amen, we of the sea and the land, we of the clerking band, hail to the Caesar who's given us men our rightful heritage back again, who summons, these women who write of loves that are loose, those little perverse honest scribes of the deuce, laughter of lies wilting lewd at their lips, their souls and brains both in a maudlin eclipse, their bosoms as bare as their stories and songs, these coaxers of dogs with their rights and their wrongs, who commands, strike from their shoulders the transparent mesh, mark the red cross on the cloth for their flesh, who ordains, ye, men who seem women in work and at play, ye, who do blindly as women may say, ye, who kill life in the smug cabarets, ye, all, at the beck of the little tea tray, ye, all, of the measure of daughters of clay, waken to face me, be women no more, but fellow men born, from top branch to the core, men who must fight who can kill, who can die, while women once more shall be covered and shy, hope dear Kaiser, amen, amen, we of the hills and the homes, we of the plows and the tomes, hail to the Caesar who's given us men our rightful heritage back again, the submarine of 1578 from the London Times, January 16th, 1915. The earliest description of a practical underwater boat is given by William Bourne in his book entitled, Inventions or Devices, published in 1578. Instructions for building such a boat are given in detail, and it has been conjectured that Cornelius Van Drubbel, a Dutch physician, used this information for the construction of the vessel with which in the early part of the 17th century he carried out some experiments on the Thames. It is doubtful, however, whether Van Drubbel's boat was ever entirely submerged and the voyage with which he was credited, from Westminster to Greenwich, is supposed to have been made in an awash condition, with the head of the inventor above the surface. More than one writer at the time referred to Van Drebel's boat and endeavored to explain the apparatus by which his rowers were enabled to breathe underwater. Van Drebel died in 1634, and no illustration of his boat has been discovered. Nineteen years later the vessel illustrated here was constructed at Rotterdam from the designs of a Frenchman named Dussan. 
This is supposed to be the earliest illustration of any submarine, and the inscription under the drawing, which was printed at Amsterdam in the Kalverstraat, in the Three Crabs, is in Old Dutch, of which the following is a translation, the inventor of this ship will undertake to destroy in a single day a hundred vessels, and such destruction could not be prevented by fire, storm, bad weather, or the force of the waves, saving only that the Almighty should otherwise will it. Illustration, the figures on the drawing refer to the following explanations, 1. The beam wherewith power shall be given to the ship, 2. The rudder of the ship, somewhat aft, 3. The keel plate, 4. The two ends of the ship, iron plated, 5. Iron bolts and screws, 6. How deep the ship goes into the water when awash, 7. The pivots on which the paddle wheel turns, 8. Air holes, 9. Gallery along which men can move. The inset is a drawing of the paddle wheels which fill the center portion of the boat and which work upon the pivot mark 7. Vain would it be for ships lying in harbor to be regarded as safe, for the inventor could reach anywhere unless prevented by betrayal. None but he could control the craft, therefore it may truly be called the lightning of the sea. Its power shall be proven by a trip to the East Indies in six weeks or to France and back in a day, for as fast as a bird flieth can one travel in this boat. This boat was 72 feet in length, and her greatest height was 12 feet, while the greatest breadth was 8 feet, tapering off to points at the end. Capt. Murray Seweter in his book on submarines gives these and other particulars of the vessel. At either end the boat had a cabin, the air in which remained good for about 3 hours, and in the middle of the boat was a large paddle wheel rotated by clockwork mechanism, which, it was claimed, would run for 8 hours when once wound up. The iron tips at the ends of the vessel were intended for ramming, and the inventor was confident he could sink the biggest English ship afloat by crushing in her hull underwater. The boat was duly launched, but on trial of the machinery being made the paddle wheel, though it revolved in air, would not move in the water, the machinery being not powerful enough. This, says Capt. Seweter, was apparently the only reason for De Sun's failure, for his principles were distinctly sound and he was certainly the first inventor of the mechanically propelled semi-submarine boat. After her failure the sun exhibited her for a trifle to any casual passerby. The Torpedo, by Catherine Drayton Aaron Simons, Junior Death, Our Mother, gave us her three grey gifts from the sea cherish year birthright, brothers, speed, cunning, and certainty, and mailed Mars. He blessed us but his blessing was most to me, for the swift gun sometimes falters sparing the foe afar, and the head mine wastes destruction on the drag's decoying spar, but I am the wrath of the fury's path of the war god's avatar, mine is the brain of thinking steel man made to match his own, to guard and guide the death discs packed in the warhead's hammered cone, to drive the cask of the thin air flask as the gyroscope has shown, my brother, the gun, shrieks or the sea his curse from the covered deck, my brother, the mine, lies sullen dumb, agape for the dreadnought's wreck, I glide on the breath of my mother, death, and my goal is my only check. More strong than the strength of armored ships is the firing pin's frail spark. More sure than the helm of the mighty fleet are my rudders to their mark. The faint foam fades from the bright screw blades and I strike from the underdark. Death, our mother, gave us her three gray gifts from the sea cherish year birthright. Brothers, speed, cunning, and certainty, and mailed Mars. He blessed us but his blessing was most to me. God punish England, brother, a new hymn of Germany's gospel of hatred from public opinion, London, February 5, 1915.
the amazing outburst of hatred against England in Germany is responsible for a new form of greeting which has displaced the conventional formulas of salutation and farewell, God punish England, God strafe England, is the form of address, to which the reply is, may God punish her, God needs striffen, this extraordinary formula, says the male, which is now being used all over Germany is celebrated in a set of verses by Herr Hochstetter in a recent number of the well-known German weekly, Lustige Blätter. In its way this poem is as remarkable as Herr Ernst Lissauer's famous hymn of hate. Among the prayers at Bruges Cathedral on the Kaiser's birthday was this German chant of hate, God punish England, a hymn of hate, translated by G. Valentine Williams. This is the German greeting when men their fellows meet, the merchants in the marketplace, the beggars in the street, a pledge of bitter enmity. Thus runs the winged word, God punish England, brother, yea, punish her, O Lord, with raucous voice, brass throat, our German shell shall bear this curse that is our greeting to the cousin in his lair, this be our German battle cry, the motto on our sword, God punish England, brother, yea, punish her, O Lord, my shell from sea, my bomb from air, our greeting shall be sped, making each English homestead a mansion of the dead and even grey will tremble as falls each iron word, God punish England, brother, yea, punish her, oh lord, this is the German greeting when men their fellows meet, the merchants in the marketplace, the beggars in the street, a pledge of bitter enmity, thus runs the winged word, God punish England, brother, yea, punish her, oh lord, what German Lutheran pastors think of the gospel of hate that is at present being preached throughout the fatherland may be judged from an article on the subject written for the Vosuske Zeitung of Berlin, by Dr. Julius Schiller of Nuremberg, who describes himself as a royal Protestant pastor, says the Morning Post. Before the war, the pastor writes, it was considered immoral to hate, now. However, Germans know that they not only may, but they must hate. Hairless Hour's hymn of hate against England Island he declares, a faithful expression of the feelings cherished in the depths of the German soul, all protests against this hate, the pastor writes, fall on deaf ears, we strike down all hands that would avert it, we cannot do otherwise, we must hate the brood of liars, our hate was provoked, and the German can hate more thoroughly than anyone else, a feeling that this is the case is penetrating into England, but the fear of the German hate is as yet hidden. There is a grain of truth in Lord Curzon's statement that the phlegmatic temperament of his countrymen is incapable of hating as the Germans hate. We Germans do, as a matter of fact, hate differently than the sons of Albion. We Germans hate honorably, for our hatred is based on right and justice. England, on the other hand, hates mendaciously, being impelled by envy, ill will, and jealousy. It was high time that we tore the mask from England's face that we finally saw England as she really island, we hate with a clean conscience. Although religion seems to condemn as an aesthetic everything that is included in the word hate, the pastor concludes by asserting that we, who are fighting for truth and right with clean hands and a clean conscience, must have him on our side who is stronger than the strongest battalions. Hence our courage and our confidence in a fortunate outcome of the world conflagration. The dawn will soon appear that announces that the day of harvest for Germany has broken. The avowal that the love of good Germans for Germany is inseparable from hatred of other countries shows how deeply the aggressiveness of German policy has sunk into the nation's mood, says the Times. Only by constantly viewing their own country as in a natural state of challenge to all others can Germans have come to absorb the view that hatred is the normal manifestation of patriotism.
it is a purely militarized conception. Hate is at bottom a slavish passion, and remote from that heroic spirit of the warrior with which the Germans represent themselves as facing a world in arms. The hater subjects his mind to the domination of what he hates, he loses his independence and volition and becomes the prey of the hated idea. At last he cannot free his mind from the obsession, and the deliberate cultivation of hate in the conscientious German manner is a kind of mental suicide. The Great Hour by Hermann S.U.D.R.R.A.N.N. Whether, O Father in Heaven, we still put our trust in you, whether you are but a dream of a sacred past, see now, we swear to you, witness of truth, not we have wanted it this murder, this world-ending murder which now, with blood-hot sighs, stamps o'er the shuddering earth, true to the earth, the bread-giving earth, happy and cheery in business and trade, peaceful we sat in the oak tree's shade, peaceful, though we were born to the sword, circled around us, forever and ever, greed, sick with envy, and nets lifted high, full of inherited hatred, everyone saw it, and everyone felt the secret venom, gushing forth, year after year, heavy and breath-baited years, but hearts did not quiver nor hands draw the sword, and then it came, the hour of sacred need, of pregnant fate, and what it brings forth, we will shape, the brown gun in our mastering hand, ye mothers, what ye once have borne, in honor or in vice, bring forth to every sacred shrine your country's sacrifice, ye brides, whom future happiness, once kissed it but seemed true, bring back to fair Germania what she has given you, ye women, in silks or in linen, offer your husbands now, bid them goodbye, with your children, with smiles and a blessing vow, ye all are doomed to a life sleepless, many a desolate night, and dream of approaching conquests and of your hero's might, and dream of laurel and myrtle, until he shall return, till he, your master and shepherd, shall make the old joys burn, and if he fell on the autumn heath and fell deep into death, he died for Germania's greatness, he died for Germania's breath, the fatherland they shall let stand, upon his blood-soaked loam, and ne'er again shall they approach our sacred, peaceful home, translated by Hutterman J. Mankiewicz. The Peace of the World A famous Englishman's diagnosis of the war disease and his prescription for a permanent cure by H.G. Wells Copyright, 1915, by the New York Times Company, copyrighted in Great Britain and Ireland. I probably there have never been before in the whole past of mankind so many people convinced of the dreadfulness of war, nor so large a proportion anxious to end war, to rearrange the world's affairs so that this huge hideousness of hardship, suffering, destruction, and killing that still continues in Europe may never again be repeated. The present writer is one of this great majority. He wants as far as possible to end war altogether, and contrive things so that when any unavoidable outbreak does occur it may be as little cruel and mischievous as it can be. But it is one thing to desire a thing and another thing to get it. It does not follow because this aspiration for world peace is almost universal that it will be realized. There may be faults in ourselves and suspected influences within us and without, that may be working to defeat our superficial sentiments. There must be not only a desire for peace, but a will for peace. If peace is to be established forever, if out of a hundred men ninety-nine desire peace and trouble no further, the one man over will arm himself and set up oppression and war again. Peace must be organized and maintained. This present monstrous catastrophe is the outcome of forty-three years of skillful, industrious, systematic world armament, only by a disarmament as systematic, as skillful, and as devoted may we hope to achieve centuries of peace, no apology is needed, therefore, 
for a discussion of the way in which peace may be organized and established out of the settlement of this war. I am going to set out and estimate as carefully as I can the forces that make for a peace organization and the forces that make for war. I am going to do my best to diagnose the war disorder. I want to find out first for my own guidance, and then with a view to my company operation with other people, what has to be done to prevent the continuation and recrudescence of warfare. Such an inquiry is manifestly the necessary first stage in any world pacification, so manifestly that, of course, countless others are also setting to work upon it. It is a research. It is a research exactly like a scientific exploration. Each of us will probably get out a lot of truth and a considerable amount of error, the truth will be the same and the errors will confute and disperse each other, but it is clear that there is no simple panacea in this matter, and that only by intentness and persistence shall we disentangle general conception of the road the peace-desiring multitude must follow. Now, first be it noted that there is in everyone a certain discord with regard to a war, every man is divided against himself, on the whole, most of us want peace but hardly anyone is without a lurking belligerence, a lurking admiration for the vivid impacts, the imaginative appeals of war. I am sitting down to write for the peace of the world, but immediately before I sat down to write I was reading the morning's paper, and particularly of the fight between the Sydney and the Emden at Cocos Island. I confess to the utmost satisfaction in the account of the smashing blows delivered by the guns of the Australian. There is a sensation of greatness, a beautiful tremendousness, in many of the crude facts of war, they excite in one a kind of vigorous exaltation, we have that destructive streak in us, and it is no good pretending that we have not, the first thing we must do for the peace of the world is to control that, and to control it one can do nothing more effective than to keep in mind the other side of the realities of war, as my own corrective I have at hand certain letters from a very able woman doctor who returned last week from Calais, Lodja, Dangreen. Men tied with filthy rags and lying bitterly cold in coaly sheds, men unwounded, but so broken by the chill horrors of the Izzer trenches as to be near demented such things make the substance of her picture. One young officer talked to her rather dryly of the operations, of the ruined towns and villages, of the stench of dead men and horses, of the losses and wounds and mutilations among his men, of the list of pedals he had lost. Suddenly he began to cry. He broke down just like an overtaxed child and he could not stop crying, he cried and cried, and I could do nothing to help him, he was a strong man and a brave man, and to that three months of war had brought him, and then this again, there were a fair number of Belgian doctors, but no nurses except the usual untrained French girls, almost no equipment, and no place for clean surgery, we heard of a house containing 61 men with no doctor or nurses several died without having received any medical aid at all, Mrs. and I even on the following Wednesday found four men lying on strong in a shop with leg and foot wounds who had not been dressed since Friday and had never been seen by a doctor. In addition there were hundreds and hundreds of wounded who could walk trying to find shelter in some corner, besides the many unwounded French and Belgian soldiers quartered in the town, as if this inferno of misery were not enough. There were added the refugees. These were not Belgians, as I had imagined, but French. It appears that both English and French armies have to clear the civil population out of the whole fighting area partly to prevent spying and treachery, which has been a curse to both armies, and partly because they would starve. They are sent to Calais, and then by boat to Haver. That first Sunday evening an endless procession flowed from the station to the quays in the drenching rain. Each family had a perambulator, a surprisingly handsome one, 
too, piled with sticks of bread, a few bundles of goods, and, when we peered inside, a couple of crying babies, there were few young people, mostly it was whimpering, frightened looking children and wretched, bent old men and women, it seemed too bad to be true, even when they brushed past us in the rain we could not believe that their sodden figures were real, they were dematerialized by misery in some odd way, some of them slept in skating rinks, trucks, some in the Emerald Gantome, one's senses could not realize that to the horrors of exile these people had added those of shipwreck next day, some certainly stood in the booking hall outside our hotel all night through, this sort of thing went on all the week, and was going on when we left, nevertheless, I was stirred agreeably by the imagination of the shell smashing the engine and the men inside the engine, and when I read the other day that the naval guns had destroyed over 4.000 men in the German trenches about Middelkirch I remarked that we were doing well. It is only on the whole that we who want to end war hate and condemn war, we are constantly lapsing into fierceness, and if we forget this lurking bellicosity and admiration for hard blows in our own nature then we shall set about the task of making an end to it under hopelessly disabling misconceptions. We shall underrate and misunderstand altogether the very powerful forces that are against pacifist effort. Let us consider first, then, the forces that are directly opposed to the pacification of the world, the forces that will work openly and definitely for the preservation of war as a human condition, and it has to be remembered that the forces that are for a thing are almost always more unified, more concentrated and effective than the forces that are against it. We who are against war and want to stop it are against it for a great multitude of reasons. There are other things in life that we prefer, and war stops these other things. Some of us want to pursue art. Some want to live industrious lives in town or country. Some would pursue scientific developments. Some want pleasures of this sort or that. Some would live lives of religion and kindliness, or religion and austerity. But we all agree in fixing our minds upon something else than war. And since we fix our minds on other things, war becomes possible and probable through our general inattention. We do not observe it. And meanwhile the people who really care for war and soldiering fix their minds upon it. They scheme how it shall be done. They scheme to bring it about. Then we discover suddenly as the art and social development, the industry and pleasant living, the cultivation of the civil enterprise of England, France, Germany and Russia have discovered that everything must be pushed aside when the war thinkers have decided upon their 